Use your pew Bibles, those are the blue ones in the front of you, or if you're in the front row in the back, and turn to page 488, Esther chapter 7 and verse 1. Actually, we're going to begin at chapter 6 and verse 14. And as you listen to this, and as we, in the weeks to come, listen to the rest of Esther, humanly speaking, who's the real ruler of, humanly speaking, who's the real ruler of Persia? You'll begin to see it in this chapter. Chapter 6 and verse 14 in Esther, and that's page 488 in your Bible. While they, that is Haman and his family and his advisors, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking, and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. And then turn to page 1169 in your pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Verse 15. 
page 1169. Colossians 2.15, he, that is God in Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and it could be either in him, in Christ, or in it, the cross, but they're both true. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord stands forever, to which you respond by saying confidently, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Some years ago, our, our oldest son, Nathaniel, was, I think, trying to get me out of a what he regarded as a theological rut. You're reading, preparing for sermons, you're reading about scriptural things so you can be a better pastor. He said, Dad, you really, you really need to read some novels. And so he gave me a, a Tom Clancy novel. I forget the title of it, but I remember it was about as big, if not bigger than, my uh, hardbound gospel transformation Bible. It was this huge book. And um, I probably had a Kindle, but it may have been pre-Kindle, but I brought this massive thing on the plane. And I was coming back from the West Coast, so I had a few hours to read, and I started reading a Tom Clancy novel. And I got to, I think, about 100 pages. And I had come across so many names and so many plots and so many subplots and so many sub-characters, I put the thing down and said, Lord, I will never, ever, ever be able to keep all of these people straight. Now, I know that had I finished the book, which I didn't, I know that Tom Clancy would have taken these dozens of names and in one way or another completed the story for each of them as far as the novel was concerned, but I couldn't keep them straight, and I wouldn't vex my mind, so I went back to the sublime study of theology instead of Tom Clancy. But I thought of that as I come to this section in, in Esther, because, you know, brothers and sisters, God has already written your story. And it's wonderful to realize that your stories are played out on the theater of human history, and if you don't believe that, Psalm 139, which is wonderful for you to, to ponder. In fact, you'll see it even invites you to ponder it. Uh, the writer, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, which is why the formation of a, of a child in the mother's womb is so fascinating to watch. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And wonderful means you're meant to be in awe of what God has done. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, the earth being a metaphor for the womb. Now listen, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
How vast is the sum of them. And, and here the writer, the writer calls us to do what we don't do in our fast-paced culture. You go from one email to the next. You go from one link on the internet to the next. You go from one social media post to the next. Brothers and sisters, we're meant to stop and think. And we're meant to be in awe of this God and what he did and what he's doing in each of you. And you're going to see this as basically all of the main characters that we've come across in the book of Esther are brought together in Esther chapter 7. Okay? Now, let's, let's go back and review for just a little bit here. Keep in mind, the main character in this book is God. We learned that last time. He's never mentioned but this is a metaphor for our culture. God is not mentioned in our culture, and it's easy for us to forget him as it would be in Esther. But God's in back of every single thing that's done. And we've seen, and we will see, and you will continue to see, God's sovereignty in all of the God ordaining all of these things. But we're going to learn a lot of lessons about human responsibility today. And remember that that is our lives, two circles. You have God and his absolute sovereignty, and man and his human responsibility. And, and all of that comes together in this chapter. Okay, um, actually, we begin at the end of chapter 6, because remember that, that in chapter 6, the king, just in the very middle of the book, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. And, and the way the text is written, it seems like that was not a common thing for him, to be restless and sleep. He couldn't sleep that night. And so he wants a good, boring book to come, and so he asked for the chronicles of the things that were done, the victories that were won. They even included some of the losses, although those were always toned down uh, by media spin of that day. Um, events that, that populations, that really boring stuff. But they also recorded significant events that impacted the king, and one of them had happened five years before. A fellow named Mordecai had overheard a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus, and he reports it to the king's relatively new queen, Esther. Esther tells the king, and there are two less citizens of Persia who are quickly dispensed with because they wanted to do away with the king, and that's it. And as you're reading Esther, it, it strikes you as odd that these kings that would always very quickly honor people who had protected them, he ends up elevating this guy, Haman, who's just not a good guy at all. And so that's the story of what happened. Now we're going five years down the line, and the king, in the middle of the night, hears about Mordecai. And he probably vaguely remembered it, but he says, uh, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what's been done to honor this man, Mordecai, who protected the king? And the leaders say, well, <laughs> nothing's been done for him. And um, so the king, and this is God's, that's not the first thing I would think of, but the king says, uh, who's out in the court right now? Let's get somebody who can start dealing with this. And lo and behold, it's Haman. Haman, who had that night had a 75-foot gallows erected to hang this fellow named Mordecai, who would not bow down to him. And Haman is excited. He's going to come to the king. He's going to get permission so that Haman could be hung on the gallows and his nemesis will be done away with. In God's sovereignty, Haman is in the court. 
And the aide says, well, Haman's there. He says, well, bring in Haman. And of course, Haman is thrilled because if the king wants him to come in, that's basically saying to him, you can ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Uh, permission to come to the king. So Haman comes and he is just full to the brim with excitement. And, and the king, and this is beautiful the way the Holy Spirit does this in the scriptures. The king says, uh, come up with some ideas for me. Uh, what really should be done for the man who has honored the king? And Haman thinks a little bit and he says, oh man, I guess what I'm going to get. And he says, I want the, the king, the king's horse very important, the garments the king has worn, a crown that the king has worn, and let that person that the king desires to be honored, let him, let him be paraded through the streets, exactly what Haman wants. And in it, subtly, he's saying, ah, something should happen to Ahasuerus. Guess who the next person in control is going to be? And imagine the look on Haman's face when the king says, great. You go ahead and arrange it and give those honors to Mordecai. Now, mm -hmm. uh, well, the look on Haman's face at that point, you want to see a face turn flush real quickly. And hurriedly, hurriedly, very important, Haman does all of this. He parades Mordecai through the street, probably does it as quickly as he could. He uh, covers his head and he runs home. He is utterly, utterly humiliated. He's gone from honor to humiliation, and he tells his family this. Now note very carefully in chapter 6 and verse 13. So Haman tells his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, and then his wise men, uh, these were those who supposedly could predict the future or they had some insight into the future. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, which of course he was, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, I want you to keep that language in mind. God is very specific in the way he answers prayer and the way he does things. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. I want you to think with me about a tornado. A tornado that really becomes a tornado when the funnel cloud hits down on the ground. And the funnel cloud is hitting down on the ground right now. And that wind in the funnel cloud is fast and furious. This, folks, this is a funnel cloud of a tornado, as you're going to see. Okay, that brings us to chapter 7 and verses 1 through 6. And this is a lousy sermon heading, but it does get the point. I want, to, I want you to get into the mind of Esther here. Chapter 7 and verses 1 through 6, getting into the mind of Esther. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. Now notice, Haman is alone with the king, and he's reveled in this. The queen has said, feast just for Haman and the king. He goes home and he tells his family, I'm going to have a feast. Nobody else is invited. I'm the only one who's going to be there. Just the king and the queen and moi. Okay, so he, that's very, very important. Okay, so they're together with the king, just the three of them. And notice in verse 2 how Esther has waited 
It's the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, and uh, obviously they were pretty happy folks, you would think, after two days of drinking wine at the feast, that the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, there's a lot of banquets in Esther, and uh, there are interesting studies about what these banquets symbolize. That hasn't been one of my fascinating things in here. But it is interesting that there's a number of banquets, at least for this reason. Kings threw banquets because it showed how great-hearted they were, how kind they were. Although, if you believe some of the secular records, at some of Ahasuerus' feasts, he could get downright mean. He ended up praising one leader for protecting him and then calling for the death of that man's own son. So he was kind of a capricious guy, but at least at this point, this is his disinterest, this is his, this is his big-heartedness, this is his generosity. And after two days of this, you can see where she probably could have asked for anything up to half of his kingdom or maybe even more of it, and he was more than willing to provide for it. And notice the language that is given in here. What is your wish and what is your request? Now notice Esther's tact and her respect in verse 3. Note the language carefully. Then Queen Esther answered, and, and, and notice that she puts things in what's called a passive mood. She's not speaking actively. She doesn't say something like, well, since you asked, this is what I really want. I really want to have this. And blah. She, she puts it in what's called a passive mood. She's the recipient of, of things. If I have found favor in your sight, O king. What tact? What kindness is there? And if it please the king, let my life... Now imagine Ahasuerus has got a lot of wine in his belly at this point. Probably this takes a little bit to dawn on him. Let my life be granted me for my wish... What's your wish? And my people for my request... And she's very, very, she's not like Vashti, okay, the, the predecessor. She's wise as a serpent, and she's gentle as a dove. And notice she is constantly called queen. Because the one who really is in control under God, from this point on, it's not Ahasuerus. It is Queen Esther. And that's such a fascinating lesson, and, I, and you don't want to abuse this, you don't want to misuse it. It's nevertheless true. The Lord's people in the Lord have a governing role in this world. You see it in the book of Revelation where the, the exalted saints, the, the, the glorified saints are seated on thrones as we sang. The apostle Paul says, don't you know that you shall judge angels? And you see a shadow of this, and that now Queen Esther is the one who really, in the Lord, is running the show. And you'll see that more and more as we go along. So she says, my wish is that my life be granted to me and my people for my request. Now she keeps going 
And notice she quotes the edict that the king had signed. For we had been sold, I and my people, to be, chapter 3 and verse 13, exact language, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now let's, let's unpack There's a lot in these two verses. Number one, this is Esther's coming out. The king does not realize she's a Jewess, and he probably didn't realize that Mordecai was a Jew either. But when she says, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, uh, it would work through the wine rather quickly to the king that these Jews, who were about 10 months later, were supposed to be all annihilated. She was one of them. His wife was a Jewess. And so this is her coming out. And brothers and sisters, this is why you don't ever moralize with the scriptures. Think of how Esther lived over those years as a Jewess when she was the king's wife. She wouldn't have observed the dietary laws. She wouldn't have observed the feast days. She wouldn't have observed the fast days. She certainly couldn't go to the temple anyway because they were in Babylon. There would be no sacrificial system. She didn't live like a Jew. If I could put it this way, Esther was a prodigal daughter, and she was in a far country. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you should live like that. But the fact of the matter is, even people who will end up becoming faithful to the Lord often are in a far country, as she literally was and spiritually was. That's number one. Number two, her respect is absolutely profound. What, what is your wish and what is your request? My wish is for my life. My respect, my, my request is for my people. And she even quotes that edict of the kings, and she quotes it word for word, showing respect. Notice she does not say, you were the one who authorized the destruction and the killing and the annihilation of my people. She doesn't say that. Now, one of the basic things you use just in, in tact is when you've got to deal with someone, use I statements. How does a person's conduct impact you? You start saying to somebody, you, 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 all the defenses go up. She doesn't do that. She really is a model of grace in what she does. Number three, notice that she appeals to his self-interest. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What's she saying? Well, slavery is hardly a pleasant thing. If you're taken over by a foreign power, this is not the slavery of selling people as was done with, with black slaves, which is condemned in the scriptures. But if, as a power, you take over others and they become your servants, your slaves, that's not a pleasant thing, but it's not a sinful thing. 
And she appeals to his self-interest when she said, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What she's saying is this, and notice how deft this is. We are your slaves, and that's in itself okay. And, and king, you benefit from that. I get that. But notice what she's saying. You go ahead and annihilate all of these Jews who apparently were exemplary citizens, and guess who's going to hurt? So she's very wise and, and very tactful, and she is, if you think about it, very much like the prophet Nathan was to David when she tells this story. Uh, Nathan, the prophet, is very, also very wise, says to David, and you've got to get the pathos of the story, He's King David, King David, who had been responsible for taking Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and also taking Uriah's life. Uh, Nathan comes to him, and he doesn't say, uh, King, you're a murderer and an adulterer. He says, let me tell you a story. Uh, he's a poor man, and he's got one little ewe lamb, one little baby lamb, and that's all he's got. He's pretty poor, and, and he raises this lamb, and the lamb feeds the lamb, takes care of the lamb, and the lamb might as well be another little son or daughter in the home, and he raises it. It's his one precious possession with his family. And then here this rich guy comes along, and he's got a whole flock, but he ain't going to take anything. He wants a good lamb dinner, and so he steals this little ewe lamb. That's like part of the family over here, and he, and he kills it and eats it as part of the family meal, and David is utterly utterly incensed and says that man needs to be put to death that's exactly the kind of thing that esther is doing with king ahasuerus except there's one big exception ahasuerus says or rather nathan says you are the man notice that uh, esther does not say that now let me stop here for just a minute and i don't want to moralize either but this is fascinating because you're seeing how grace is working itself out in this formerly prodigal daughter. And notice that she's dealing with a hostile king. She appeals to him tactfully. She appeals to him respectfully. She quotes his own language. She appeals to him wisely. She appeals to him even speaking in terms of his self-interest. You know, as slaves, you do get a certain benefit, and you don't want to get rid of that benefit. And brothers and sisters, that is a real model for what we increasingly are going to have to do in our culture. Like it or not, we're in a Persia-like culture in which there is a toleration of God's people, but in many cases, an antagonism of them. And you don't win anything by the frontal approach. There are tactful, gracious ways of dealing with it. Let me deal with the issue of the killing of the unborn. Now, now Esther uses the language. She talks in here about what really the killing of the unborn is, destruction, killing, and annihilation. And so we speak about the genocide of the unborn, and it is. And that language needs to be used because it's honest. But in making an appeal to the king for a change that must come, she does something like this. She doesn't use the word genocide in the first place, 
but she appeals to him respectfully and to his self-interest. Folks, when it comes to leaders, even when you disagree with them, you be respectful of them. Ahasuerus was not really a good guy. She was respectful. He was the king. You respect that. And appealing to self-interest. Do you realize what we are doing when we kill off a whole generation of young people? You want a lesson? China. China had the one-child policy for years. Economically, they are sinking because of that. And we will too. Now, that's not your first argument from the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill, but it's true. And there are harms that come by the violation of God's law. And you can apply that in many, many different areas. But, but learn the lesson of this now increasingly grace-infused Esther, okay, as she comes, as she comes to the king. All right, so she, she makes this appeal, and verse 5, the king responds just like David. King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? What is he saying? You realize Haman's edict would mean the destruction of his wife. And he realizes this. It dawns on him. And yes, he is impulsive. Yes, he could be fierce. In a real sense, Ahasuerus was somewhat like an Adolf Hitler figure in many ways. And so, but he is utterly incensed. And imagine Haman at this point. It's the king, and it's him, and it's the queen, and there's one more move that needs to be made, and for Haman, it is checkmate, and he knows it. Because notice what happens next. The king says, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Check me. Esther said, a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. And then Haman, you can imagine, was terrified before the king, and note the language again, before the king and the queen. Now, at this point, and again, this is kind of moralizing, people will say, but Esther really wasn't being merciful here. I mean, really, Haman hadn't actually killed anybody. Just had an edict to kill him, but, but he hadn't really killed anybody. Isn't, isn't Esther being just really too harsh and not merciful? The answer is absolutely no. Number of reasons. Number one, what that man did, even though it was unwitting, that was a threat to the king and to his kingdom. Even in Susa, the capital, the people were upset by the edict to destroy the Jews. God had used the Jews in a particular way to bring blessing there, as he said he would. That was a threat not only to the kingdom, but it was a threat to his own wife that this would happen. So certainly what she said is right. It was disrespectful to the throne. But she's the queen. And she is God's agent in this. And the Lord uses her, as he's supposed to use all leaders, 
to bring about, call out evil. Human responsibility for a leader is to call out evil, what is contrary to good, and to be instruments of justice. And so Queen Esther is doing exactly what she should do in her role as queen. That's human responsibility. But God's sovereignty. Haman was of the Amalekite tribe. He was an Agagite. They had been fierce opponents of God's people. And not only had God said to Abraham, whoever curses you, I will curse. He also said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. But he said, whoever curses you, I will curse. But God says of the Amalekites, because of their warfare against the Jews that would be led by Haman here, I will have war with them in all successive generations. Why is that important? God, folks, is pretty serious about his promises. And one of the reasons the scriptures give this is because we have our doubts. You really wonder in the midst of the world where everything seems chaotic. Is God, God really working? And oh yeah, he is. He is. And this one who would blot out the Jews living out of his Agagite background, God said, I'm going to blot out the memory of the Amalekites. It's just that I do it. And the queen is the one who's the instrument of that. She does this in her royal authority. Okay, so that's just, now that's all, that's just getting into the, the mind and the heart of Esther. Now, what, we're talking about tornado, funnel cloud. Okay, we're down, the funnel cloud has hit the ground here. Watch how fast and furious things are now. So the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. And the reason, the wine drinking is supposed to make you happy and quiet, He's really in a bad way. I mean, if somebody under the influence of alcohol gets angry, they're really angry. The king arose in his wrath to the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. And then Haman stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Now, why did the king do this? Why did the king go out to the garden? Remember... He is the counterfeit sovereign. These lessons in empires, particularly at the end of the Old Testament, you have the empire of Assyria, of Babylonia, of Persia, and they're very, very much like the beast in the book of Revelation. There is a sovereignty, quote-unquote, that is a counterfeit of God's sovereignty. It's really part of the rebellion of people against the sovereign God. And here... This sovereign, talk about checkmate, this sovereign has signed an edict, or with his signet ring, has sealed this edict. About 10 months from that point, you wipe out all of the Jews, and that's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be changed. And he's stuck. Because he loses his honor... If he revokes it, in fact, actually, he takes away the very basis of his so-called sovereignty. But if he doesn't, his wife is toast. And so he, he's wrestling with these things in the garden. And guess what? Haman is alone with the queen. Now, what, what does Haman do? Well, he could go out to the king. But, you know, it's just 
plain sense. I don't use common sense because if there were such a thing, there'd be more of it. But if there's a volcano erupting, you're very wise not to go near it. Okay, so, so you're not going to go run to this erupting volcano. He could have run away, but you can run, but you can't hide. That wouldn't help. So what does he do? He stays in the room with Queen Esther, which was forbidden in the laws of the harem. No male, other than a eunuch, no male was to be present with anyone from the king's harem. And there were severe punishments for that, but not as severe as something else. So here is, who's the main actor in this? God. And you say, well, this is Haman. He made his decision. He was going to stay with Queen Esther. He probably would do the same thing. He's alone with Queen Esther to beg for his life, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So he acted responsibly, but he was still alone with the king. Ah, but wait, wait, wait. Verse 8, the king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. Notice how the tables are turned. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Whoa! This is the man who was incensed to the point that you wipe out all of the Jews because Mordecai would not bow down to him. Guess what? He's bowing down to Queen Esther, and you see that this statement of the wise men that we read before, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, which he was, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What an irony is here. But there's more to it. He falls on the couch where Esther was. Now, there was another law, punishable by death. You could not be within seven steps of someone from the king's harem, other than the eunuchs. You could not be within seven steps. This is where some Christian schools got their six-inch rule about being away from women. But, but he couldn't be within seven. And this man is right at the couch where Queen Esther is. And who's the main actor? It's God and his sovereignty. The king comes in just as Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And that's what gives the king the opportunity to get rid of Haman. To that point, Haman really hadn't done anything wrong, but he did something wrong by the law of the courts at that point. And this is the opportunity for Haman to be put out of the picture. Who's sovereign over this? Who's sovereign over all of these things, including the amount of wine that they had? So, again, we're at the bottom of a tornado here. As the word left the mouth of the king, which means very quickly, they covered Haman's face, which is, what do you do when you cover a person's face, folks? It means they're dead. He's as sure as dead. He covered his face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king. Now notice, note again, God's sovereignty in what's said. 
Moreover, the gallows, that, see, what, what he, the reason he says moreover is we know that Haman's done. He's going to be killed. But we've got to think about the way to do this. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. Haman's hearing all of this. He's not dead yet, even though his face is covered. Is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him there. Talk about being hoisted with your own petard. This is exactly what happened. The very instrument, the very trap that he'd laid for Mordecai, he falls into it himself, even as the scriptures say will happen with something like this. And his obituary is quite interesting. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows. His whole family sees this. It's right at his house. And they're struck with this carrying out of the curse on evil Haman, even as they said it would happen. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. You want the obituary for Haman? Pride goes before destruction. Here's the sermon subtitle. Honor, humiliation, hanging. Wow, what a, what a sobering thing that is. And you see again God's sovereignty over all of these things. Let me just, I'm fascinated with this little phrase. Haman is, the gallows was not hanging. You were impaled on the gallows. It was the Persian equivalent of something for the Roman Empire that was called a cross. Haman was impaled on that Persian cross, the one that had been prepared for Mordecai. This is going to be shocking when you hear this, but it will expose your self-righteousness and mine. You really can't stand Haman. Jesus became Haman on the cross. What do you mean by that? He didn't sin the way Haman did. But the scriptures tell us this is, this is one of the wonders, if not the nuclear reactor of the wonder of the gospel. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who had nothing of Haman in him to be Haman, to take the sins of a person like Haman that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See how that smacks at our self-righteousness? All along, you point your finger at Haman. But when you realize that's the identification of Christ with our sin, wow, boy, does that pierce. Why, why do you bring that up here? This Persian cross on which Haman was crucified, then the wrath of the king abated. And it's no stretch at all to see that when Jesus said, 
it is finished. The father said exactly the same thing. No more wrath against the sins of all for whom you gave your life. That's the glory of the gospel. And I remind you again, in these books at the end of the Old Testament, these, these themes, these threads that will be woven together in what we know of as Christ and his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reign, these are all threads that are woven together in Christ. It's fascinating, fascinating the way that language is used. Now, this point before we go, just to one other thing in, in here. We live in a day in which people will say, you know, I, I, I love Jesus, but I really don't like his church. I, I'll believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be part of the church. God doesn't think like that. In fact, that really is an affront to God who says Christ and his church are one flesh. And it may sound simplistic, but it's still very true. Jesus says, if you love me, then you better love my bride as well. And that must be said in our culture that, quite frankly, is very anti-church. Now, here's how serious this is. Yes, oppose God, and you will be opposed. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But it's also true. You oppose his church, and you are in big trouble. How do you prove that from the scriptures? Old Testament. As you read the Chronicles of the nations that were wicked nations, that, that were vile nations. You very rarely read about their national sins, how quick we are to deal with our national sins, and there are national sins. What Tyre and Sidon and Philistia and Assyria and Babylonia are dealt with about is the way they dealt with God's people. And even when God was using them as instruments, as he did with Assyria and Babylonia, to discipline his people, they're still judged for the way they mistreated the Lord's people. You say, where do you get this from the New Testament? Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? That's how close... Jesus is to his church. And even when you think of it, I will build my church. And the gates, the, the defenses, a gate is, is a defense. You have, the, you have the enemy in the city, and the enemy in the defense is closing himself in. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means what? Christ will in his own time, in his own way, break through. And the enemies of his people will be vanquished. Now, if we were doing a church history course, you could, do, you could do a whole course just on how this plays out in human history. But brothers and sisters, 
Let's treat the church not with the reverence you give to Christ because he's God. But don't ever say something like, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. I love your kingdom, Lord, the house of your abode, the church, our blessed Redeemer, bought with his own precious blood. Okay, Haman, life story here. Let's just very quickly, just for a moment here. Let's look at really what is reversal number three, and then that is chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to, notice again, Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to be, to her, what he was to her, that that was her cousin. And the king took off his signet ring which he'd taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Essentially that said, you have my very authority over the kingdom. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now we're going to see how this plays out, because there's a lot more to this. My only point here is this. This, folks, is not only Esther... And Mordecai's story, it's yours. Ultimately, it's Christ. Because Christ is humbled, and he's exalted, and given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's your Christian life as well. A life of humbling. We deal with our own remaining indwelling sin. We deal with all kinds of affliction in the world, all kinds of trials. And this side of heaven, it can look pretty bleak. And there are times, obviously, where God gives encouragement or blessing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Like when the Lord takes you to glory, and you'll find it's all worth it. And you join with the glorified saints in heaven, seated on the thrones, not the Lord's own throne, but those in which you are, the language is a co-regent with the king. So it really is a very fascinating story. Now, let me wrap this up with this. Brothers and sisters, God has written your biography. That's the language of Psalm 139. I wrote, I wrote as it were, the chapters of the book of your life, when as yet there was not one of them. If I could put it this way, being very respectful to the Lord, our God is a perfect Tom Clancy where characters are a multitude that no man can number and every single life is completely wrapped up in his own sovereign grace and goodness. And, and what, what makes up that biography? Well, number one is your responsibility. And that's written in the script. And I don't understand that. I don't understand how God is sovereign over everything that we do. And yet at the same time, we are 100% completely responsible. There's two circles, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But you know that practically. You don't go out to Veterans Highway and say, Well, Lord, if you've ordained for me to live another 10 years, then I can walk out in front of that speeding traffic and I'll be fine. You go ahead and do that, and you're crazy. You're not a good Christian. You're not believing in God's sovereignty. You're testing the Lord your God. You say, oh, can I make it across the street or not? We live out of our human responsibility. But even your mistakes, 
even your follies, even your sins, even like Esther, your life in the far country is written in your book by your sovereign God. Again, the Judy Rogers song that has that beautiful line, If we should stand, or even if we fall, God is working out his purpose in it all. Do you believe that? If you don't, listen carefully. If you don't believe that, and you really begin to think that all of these things are of your writing, and, and you messed up, and you failed, and you did, and somehow that's the determinative part of your life, you are making yourself your sovereign. But when you realize, Lord, I'm not taking away my foolishness. I'm not taking away my culpability. But Lord, I can see. You take this crooked stick and you still cut a straight path with it. Wow. Okay, so see, you have that on the one hand, your responsibility. But who is the main actor in your life it's your sovereign God, and don't ever forget it. Don't, don't try to do this. Well, let's see. Let's have one line here. And okay, God, how sovereign is God? Well, let's see. God is 10% sovereign. No, I can't have God 10% sovereign. Yeah, he's, he's 20% sovereign. No, I can't have that. He's 30%. No, that doesn't work either. Well, it, it, well if I have 100% sovereign and I'm on the line, then that means I'm a puppet. Don't think like that, folks. Two circles. God is 100% sovereign. You are 100% responsible. So how do you know that? Of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. What does that mean? It means, folks, that every single chapter in your life, God has authored for good. Painful chapters. You find out from the doctor, I have a terminal illness. And there's not much likelihood that we're going to be able to deal with it. You raise your children in the Lord, and the children are not following the Lord faithfully. You have family difficulties within your family and your extended family, and you worked hard to see a family in harmony with the Lord and with others. You lose your job. You have difficulty in school, whatever it would be. If, again, you're thinking about the fact, what did I do to mess this up? Why is it this way? What's it going to do? How's it? You're going to very quickly begin to make yourself your sovereign. And we don't make good sovereigns. Think of Ahasuerus. Tried to be sovereign and had himself in a corner, as we will all do when we try to have ultimate control. So what is that? Why does God do that, though? So you'll trust him. What? Yes. God's purpose in all that he does is that you turn to him. When you realize you're not in control, you better turn to the one who has all control. And when you start wallowing in the pits of unbelief, it's things like this chapter that show you that God is going to be faithful to his promises, and he will bring them to pass. So to make you turn to the Lord, is God calling you just to turn to him today? Don't run away from him. You can't. See, now you run away from him, you try to oppose him. Hello? Think about Haman. You don't want to be like that. And you say, but, but God, God, you're going to learn this at the Lord's Supper. God is mean. No, he's not. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that says he's not like Ahasuerus at all. Come to him. And when you go through those trials, 
That's what's meant is you come to him. In fact, actually, you want your Christian life? We sang it. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. Remember, hurry, 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 the tornado. Unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. And that's what the book of Esther is showing us. Now, we are in a dilemma. Praise the Lord, it's wonderful. Finally, Esther and Mordecai are in that exalted position where they are right next to the king. That's great. Law of Medes and the Persians, about 10 months from this, all the Jews, including... Mordecai and Esther are to be wiped out. Humanly speaking, that dilemma is insoluble. But remember who the main character is in this book. <laughs> it's God himself. And you'll begin to see how God will solve the unsolvable when we come to the next chapter of Esther. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, thank you that you captivate us with yourself. Thank you, our Lord, that we are delivered from all of the vagueness of the world, all of the irregularities of the world, all of the potholes of the world, and we are brought up to heaven itself to realize the Lord our God does all things well. To him be the glory forever. So, Lord, make us to be a people who trust in you and rest in you. And we would never for a moment use your sovereignty as an excuse for our sin. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid. But our Lord, at the same time, we pray that we would live out of that wonderful truth. If we should stand, or even if we fall, you're working out your purpose in it all. You did it with Mordecai, you did it with Esther, you did it with Haman. You're going to do it with the Jews. You did it with Jesus, and you're doing it with us. Grant us that faith to believe these things. For the sake of our King Jesus, amen. Amen.